0: So what I'm going to talk today um, about is, um, is whether or not Ebola emergence is predictable. And, um, and the sort of collective wisdom two years ago when there was a huge outbreak in West Africa, the, uh, tenfold bigger, twentyfold bigger than any other outbreak that had ever been, was that nobody really screwed up. Um, nobody should have predicted this because Ebola is inherently unpredictable and you couldn't have done it. It's just sort of an act of God and it's too bad. Um, We should have been prepared more in terms of response, but, hey, we didn't know what was going to happen out there, so we couldn't have predicted. And the conventional wisdom about why we couldn't predict it is that Ebola is endemic over large areas. It's permanently persistently present across wide swaths of Africa. Uh, That bat migration, you know, bats are the best guess. We're not 100% sure, but the best guess for a reservoir host for Ebola is bats, fruit bats. And they, they, you know, they migrate, some fruit bats migrate over long distances and therefore they're carrying the virus around, so you can't tell whether it's just going to go from one country to another in, in a few days. And then, and then furthermore, people say the emergence risk is predicted by some, you know, the reservoir host distribution, human habitat disturbance, and some kind of climate trigger. And since we don't know what the climate trigger is, um, we can't really tell what's going to happen. And in fact, people tend to be enamored of anything that says climate in it. So, um, because saying climate gets you grants and people like climate. Um, and, and before, the predecessor to climate, it used to be habitat disturbance thing that got you grants, now it's saying climate gets you grants. So people that, you know, want some, and furthermore, it's, it's a morality tale. You know, Ebola emerges because we're bad, we did something bad, you know, modern humans are bad, and therefore and therefore, the scourge emerges and to punish us for doing habitat disturbance or changing the climate, et cetera. And the problem with these ideas, the conventional wisdom, is that's the problem. It's all nonsense, bollocks, right? And not all of it's bollocks, like this isn't, that looking at the reservoir host distribution might help you predict emergence, but the rest of it's bollocks. And um, and why, why am I so confident about that is because I used to live in this region right here, and this is Ebola central. This is the about of the known outbreaks of Ebola, I think about Nineteen of twenty-five have occurred right in this area, right here. Uh, a couple in this area, uh, a couple in this area here, and then one in West Africa. And um, and and f- so, so living there a long time and being a mathematical ecolog- disease ecologist, um, you know, uh, what impressed me about what's going to give us a predictive power about predicting where Ebola is going to emerge is not the other stuff people are saying. It's understanding the the, the role of intermediate hosts. Uh, in, 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 in passing the virus from bats to people, and then also that it's not endemically um, present. It's an epizootic wave. And, and I'll talk about both of those topics. Um, and in particular, I want to point out that there was a nomenclature change, you know, like five years ago. They used to talk, speak in terms of uh, uh, different strains of Ebola virus and different strains of Myber, Marburg virus. But more recently, they have decided that this is a genus, and these are now all species. So Ebola virus is now a species, right? And so if I say Ebola virus, I mean particularly that, what used to be called Zaire Ebola virus. You know, Ebola Zaire is now called just Ebola virus, and then there are four other Ebola viruses, and, uh, and then a couple Marburg viruses, right? But, and everything I say does not apply to these other ones, because they have totally different dynamics than Ebola. It's only Ebola that behaves the way I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, talk about. Okay, so intermediate hosts, and so, um, you know, there was a massive die-off of gorillas and chimpanzees in the, in the 90s and early 2000s, and part, that part of Africa I was talking about, Gabon, Congo. And, and in that region, when people find a carcass on the ground, they cut it up and take it home and eat it. And so if you look at where most of the outbreaks um, of Ebola came from, they came from contact with infected carcasses of either chimpanzees, gorillas, or a few other species, forest antelope, di- diker. They did not come from direct contact with bats. And so the idea that you should c- focus on the distribution of the putative reservoir ho- host is mistaken because what's really determining the outbreak risk is the distribution of, uh, of large mammals. And in places where there's large ma- a lot of large mammals, there, there, are, there are still large mammal populations, that's where the outbreaks are most, most often occurring. And, and so if you, in fact, you look at this region right here, and this is sort of the armpit of Africa right here, you know, this part right here. The equator runs right across here. Um, this is the Gulf of Guinea. Uh, what we have here is uh, Cameroon, Gabon, uh, Republic of Congo, and Central African Republic here. Equatorial Guinea is a little country here. So in that area there, and you, you, know, you have this road network there. It, more, and that's just indicating it's more heavily populated along the coast. This is Cameroon going into Equatorial Guinea than into Gabon then it's very lightly ha- inhabited in the interior, right? And in fact, so if you look at the national gradient in nape density, if you, if you go from the coast out in the interior, um, in the last, you know, between in the 80s, there used to be a lot of gorillas and chimpanzees out in the coast, and, and in the course of about 20 years, they, they, all the ones that were here were killed by bushmeat hunting. And that's because bushmeat hunting was originating, was feeding the cities on the coast. And so they just sort of, they've sort of hunted out everything that's near the coast in, the, in these areas. This is Gabon. They've hunted out, and all the, the gorillas are now, and this is another big city here, and all the gorillas are away f- from the cities, right? If you look at Ape, this is distance to the capital, of gabon Libreville, and the Ape density just declines pretty much linearly. You know, the farther away you get from the capital, uh, oh, this is, the op- this is not Ape density, I'm sorry, this is hunting sign intensity. It's the signs of people hunting. I apologize, that's, that's the opposite. Um, Anyway, so, uh, and so, the, and so that was what would hap- was happening you know, 20, 30 years ago. And what's been happening more recently is that there's been a post-colonial uh, reinvasion of the interior. So the, um, the, the French colonial administration actually moved people off, off of villages onto roads and, and, and rivers and created these big blocks of habitat here out in this, in this whole region, it was the, these were French colonies, one big French colony, equatorial West Africa. And it's been split into several countries now. But, but the French created this in, in, the, in the 20s and 30s, really. And, 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 and since then, the, 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 the economic policy specifically promoted natural resource exploitation, particularly logging. They built a transnational railroad, and they devalued the currency to make labor cheap. And so they've really promoted having um, uh, export economy based on natural resources, and you had oh sorry you can't see this logging goods. So, so essentially, you have had a massive increase in in, in the 80s, and 90s, and how much log logs were being exported, uh, and you had uh, uh, you can't see this well. The I'm sorry, change from white to black, black background. Um, and so and, and you had a, a urbanization. So the the, the 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 rural population dropped by half, and the the curve here says that the urban population increased 20-fold um, between 1960 and about 1990, right? So everybody moved into, into towns. And, and, and that just changed the, 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 the economy from a subsistence hunting and agriculture economy to a cash economy. Everybody has lots of money now. They, they buy bushmeat. They eat much more bushmeat than they used to, and it's commercial activity. It's no longer subsistence. It's a big business. It's a, it's a huge industry. And, and this is sort of in the early 70s out to about 2002. This, these are, this is a big park up, up, up in uh, northern Congo. And this is the road network in red. And what you see is that it, just, it has just now surrounded the park. And now, if you went out there now, this is now 13, 14 years out of date, this is now full of roads. And on those roads are people in, in, in logging vehicles with transporting hunters around with bush in them. And you know, they, they use a the logging vehicle to get out there to hunt, and then they bring the bushmeat back to town, and, they, then, they, and then they go back to the, the logging town, and there's seven or 10,000 people with salaries, and then they sell the meat, and they eat vastly more protein than they used to. And there's this relationship where these, as you can see from the maps, and they sort of surround these big blocks of habitat, the roads do. And you have this thing where there's a settlement, and there's a road there's a settlement. And so all the apes and all the other large, large animals are sort of hunted out. The closer you get to the road, the fewer animals there are, right? And all the animals are out in the middle of the block. And so this, this is actually stairs and shotgun shells, signs of hunting, and distance from road. So close to the road, you just got a lot of hunting, and you get out in the middle of these big blocks. These are two massive blocks of forest. One's 30,000 square kilometers. One's 13,000 square kilometers. And, and it's not until you're you know, 40 or 50 kilometers away from the road until you actually have no hunting. And yeah, I've just been back out in Congo a few weeks ago, and it's even getting worse now. It's just, a, you know, the, the rate at which this has happened, I went there one of the first time in 1996 when I must have been like, about, in my early 30s, and now I'm, now I'm 56, so 20 years I've been working there, and it's just, the shit has hit the fan. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It used to be you could walk 1,000 kilometers and be, never be five more than five kilometers from an elephant or a gorilla. Now it's just boom, it's exploded. It's just amazing. The forest is still standing, but the big animals are just being hunted out. Hunted out. Boom, they're gone. Go, if you want to go see a gorilla in the wild, go now, right? Um, and and so you had this massive hunting effect. And so if you say distance the road, this is just four different big protected protected areas. The farther uh, you went away from, and this is in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s. The farther away you went from a, from, from a road, the more gorillas there were, right? More eggs. Um, and, and so you have this mass gradients there. And so where hunting is occurring is highly predictable, both on a national scale and on a local scale. You know exactly where, there's, where there are extant you know, dense large mammal populations, intermediate hosts, right? And so th- if you think about that, if you've got this relationship that, that the hunting does this, distance from villages, say, you know, uh, and the honey does this. So there's not many apes near the village, and you get further away from the village. That's where all the apes are. If you drop a, a, a virus in the ape population, and you have an epidemic, and you have transmission, and you have density-dependent transmission dynamics. So the, high, the higher the density of, uh, if I go, ah, chew, right? That the, the more people are there are in this room, the more likely it is to spread spread to the next ape group, right? And so, and, and it, you can run a little simulation. Let's hope this runs here. Yeah, and then let drop in here. Let's see what happens as a function of, uh, uh, of the structure. If you have something that come, you know, starts near the other road, it just burns out because the ape density isn't high enough. Um, it, uh, if you put it out in the middle where there's really high ape densities, it just kills everybody, right? And that's the observation that we have from the region is that you know, uh, tens of thousands of girls in Japan died in in this area. And, and, and so what the prediction then is is that you know, before, before Ebola comes in, it should the distribution should like like this, increasing the distance from the road, and then that epidemic process should kill all the ones in the big blocks of forest, right? And then afterwards, you hit, oh, distance from village, that's the same thing. It should look like that. So that big peak of, of girls away from the road should should be gone, and the survivors should be near the road. That's a prediction for density-dependent uh, Ebola transmission dynamics. And if you look at the data, this is the same data I showed you before. And if you actually look at the, this is places that have not had Ebola outbreaks. This is going to be places that have Ebola outbreaks. Lo and behold, it's is exactly what it shows. But out in the middle of these big blocks of forest, there's no more gorillas and chimpanzees. Right? And this is four very large. This is 13,000 square. This is 30,000 square. This is about uh, 7,000 square kilometers. This is, you know, this is a smaller place. So it's r- repeated over across the region, right? And, you know, and this is Gabon and Congo right here in Central African Republic up here in Cameroon. And, and so it's a really strong effect. And in fact, this is just, like this density compensation and what's happened now is that is that these are pre-outbreak things there's a body size effect where big animals are, are disappear very quickly um, as a consequence of they're very sensitive to, 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 uh, to hunting and smaller animals are much less sensitive and so uh, um, before the outbreak if you plot, you plot by body mass the distance from the road and these are the slopes of distance from the road so a big slope means it looked like that with distance to the road. In other words, there were no girls near, near the road and lots of girls in, in the interior. And it sloped the other way. A negative slope means most of the animals are packed towards the road. So before Ebola, you, you, you had that with apes being densest near the road. And the smaller you get, the, um, the, the, the less you are packed into the interior of the, the block. And then after Ebola, it reverses, right? So the apes are now found near the edge of the road, and the other ones, the smallest ones, are now, it's reversed. And that's evidence that there's density compensation, that the killing of the big stuff, is they're all frugivores. They all eat the same thing. And you kill uh, the big ones who are eating a lot of fruit. There's more fruit for the small ones. And now you have explosion of small stuff, including things like rats and and small birds, which carry just about every other kind of... They are rats and bats are the ones who are viral reservoirs, right? So, But the, the effect of... Ecosystem service that gorillas are providing by suppressing bat and and, and rat populations—they're probably actually reducing the prevalence of, of viral pathogens in the environment. Um, okay, so um, okay, so wave So that's the first part. Uh, wave spread. Uh, this is going to get very technical. I'm going to whip through it. If you have questions, stop me and ask me. Okay, okay. Um, phylogenies. Anybody? Uh, okay. Uh, so so. Um, in 2005, I guess, I published with a couple of friend, friends of mine a paper saying, hey, you know something? Ebola's not everywhere. If you take the very first outbreak near Yambuku, right, and you fit a regression against the, 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 the years after the very first outbreak and the distance of the other outbreaks from that first outbreak site, right, what you get is a straight line, right? It goes out this way, it goes out this way, it goes this way, comes here, and then turns back, right? And if then you plot this, uh, you know, this is, so this is just time by distance away from the first outbreak. It's very linear, which means it's moving at a very consistent rate through space, right? Okay, if you take, um, if you move down on just this small scale within here, bet- between, I think this is like a 2001 and 2005, so the first... This, scale, this thing I showed you here, this is 1,000 kilometers, this is 1,000 kilometers. It's a big scale, right? You move down to one tenth of that scale and the local scale here, and it does the same thing. It moves through space on the local scale, boom, boom, years after Mendemba. Mendemba is the first one that occurred over here, kilometers of Mendemba, right? So it's moving through space on both scales very consistently through, through space. It's a wave, it's, a, it's an epizootic wave moving through the reservoir hosts, probably bats, right? And that wave looks something like. Is this going to get. Uh, tum, 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 up. Uh, Let's see if it works. Yeah, there we go. And this is something I did a long time ago. It looks something like that. And, and it probably also came across here this way, and it probably also went down here, but I just have no data with which to plot the, the thing. This is a. Uh, susceptible and infected recovered SIR, epidemiological model, that's, that's, that, that's what the data are that they're, they're creating. that natural epidemiological model. And from a conservation perspective, that sucked because these yellow and red are the, are the, the parks where 95% of the gorillas live in the world, and, and these big parks here got whacked, and that's why gorillas are not critically endangered because the, the biggest populations, the sort of arc for gorillas got whacked by Ebola and about half the gorillas in the world, a third of the gorillas in the world died in the course of about 15 years. Um, bad. Um, okay, so now if you look at the phylogeny, and this is, these are gene sequence data from, uh, from, from Ebola Zaire, um, from the actual virus, and this is the glycoprotein gene, and you say, what's the relationship genetically between these viruses? And lo and behold, what you find out is that uh, that first outbreak that occurred in 1976 is essentially the parent of every other known strain of Ebola virus. Everything else is descended from that. And, in fact, if you go down the, the, the tree, the, you know, there's a branch, you can see, really see spatial branching process. I don't have time to talk about it here, but it, it's exactly what you'd expect if the thing was just moving through space in a wave. And, and just as it's moving through space very consistently, it's, it's mutating very consistently. So it just gets, it's going very, very clock-like fashion, boom, boom, boom through space. And in fact, if you plot kilometers from distance, and instead, of, instead, of, uh, instead of plotting years since Yambuku versus distance to Yambuku, I'm now plotting distance to Yambuku against genetic distance. This is spatial distance and this is a genetic distance, and they're highly correlated along that same path. The farther away it gets, get, 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 goes on the operating trajectories uh, in, in space, the, far, the farther away it involves. Away from Yambuku genetically, it's just clock-like. It's just it, it just screams that this is an epizootic wave. In fact, I gave a talk here at Oxford about the time ta- right bef- when this paper was in review. I gave a talk, and the people in the vi- virology community hated me, absolutely hated me, because I was c- challenging the the, the the conventional wisdom that was everywhere I was in, in Democles, But they just they had never met me, they'd never heard of me. And, and those of you who are interested, in, you guys are uh, history of medicine. Is that what we're talking? Have you read Tomas Kuhn's uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions of the Paradigm Concept? It's, this is like you could do a paper on, on me, and I, and I represent everything that Kuhn said. I was an outsider. Uh, they, they resented me. They'd never heard of me. I talked mathematically in a way they didn't understand. Um, um, it challenged their, 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 their career's work. It was all the things that, that, that he said about scientific paradigms were right there, and they just did not want to hear it. I mean, they, they were at the CDC in Atlanta, they hated me. I mean, they literally hated me. And, and I, and I even, even gave a talk, that, and afterwards, my co author, Les Real, you know, asked, it was a friend with friends so that used it, Les's at Emory, which is in Atlanta. And he asked the guy, What's wrong with that? So, so you seen the talk, you seen the data, what do you think? And he said, he said well, do, you have any, um, do you have any criticism? And the guy just said, No, but I don't believe it, right? And so they, they just hated this. They hated the fact that this could be spatial spread, and in fact, if you you, you know, there's other, you know, in that once again, I, I did the big scale, and the little scale. This is the big scale, local scale, same thing, right? You know, very consistent. As you move away in pairwise between two sites, the genetic distance between two sites grows linearly, um, and, and this is this is these are uh, um, these are data from. Uh, I uh, anyway, I submitted the paper for review. Paul Harvey used to be head, the head of the department of zoology. What um, was was the, the reviewer um, on the paper in PLOS Biology? I mean, he was the ed- reviewing editor. And I gave a talk here, and here the talk, and he said, "Okay, you get published." And then while it was in review, there was another outbreak, and it fit it fit right on the re- re- regression line. It was great. And so when those guys saw that, they said, "Oh, prediction, right?" And so anyway, so um, so I said, you know, evolution is predictable. I mean, this is really predictable, and. Virtually all the uh, mathematical, uh, you know, wildlife disease ecologists and mathematical epidemiologists saw these data and said, man, this is, this is, they understood it. Right? And, and, and they, they said, wow, this is, this is really convincing. Uh, you know, and I said, hey, we should be tracking this wave. If you want to predict where our outbreaks are be, all you got to do is go out. And in fact, you could do antibody assays in baths and just track the frequency of, uh, of antibodies. And that will allow you to predict where it's, where it's been and then therefore where it's going. In a very simple way, and the CDC and the WHO and everybody else said, "No way, it's unpredictable, right?" And and they just would not accept it, right? And so, um, and then shortly thereafter, after I published this, some data came alight that allowed them to say, "No, there's long-distance viral movement in the because of bat migration." And there had been some data, but at the same time, it was the first compelling evidence that, that bats were the reservoir, they, the first time they got some um, Ebola RNA out of some bats, not actual live virus, but some RNA. And so the, the figure was pointing at fruit bats pretty strongly. They said, "Ha!" but fruit bats move long distances. And then they got some, there was another outbreak down here in Luebo. Um, the original DRC one had been here, and then the one I showed you in my thing. And then in 2007, there was an outbreak here. And they did a phylogenetic analysis of it, and they said, well, this is the phylogenetic tree, and again, Yambuku is at the root. Yambuku is the daddy of everybody else, or the mama, um, and, and, and then, but the important part is that these outbreaks right here are the ones, uh, are, are on the area that I was talking about, that, that, that little box, right, in Congo, and this one, and this one right here is 1,000 kilometers away, right, and they had a most recent common ancestor that was pretty recent. It was like three or four, four years before uh, these outbreaks. Um, these outbreaks occurred 2001 to 2005, and then the, the most recent common ancestor of this thing in DRC and this thi- th- thing in Gabon were, was was 1999 or something like that. So it implied that there had been something here it had split, and one of them had gone a thousand kilometers away to uh, to, 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 to DRC, and the other ones had gone here to to to, to, to Congo. And essentially, they they said, you know. Uh, 1,000 kilometers in five years. The only way that could possibly happen is if a bat flew it there, right? And you, I, my, my spread rate is 50 kilometers a year from, from those plots I showed, just moving 50 kilometers. All of a sudden, in five years, it goes uh, 1,000 kilometers. That's 200 kilometers a year. That's four times as fast as I'm saying. Only way it's getting there is migration. And that happened. They published that. And then, and then now, in 2014, we had this outbreak in, in, in West Africa. It started in Guinea and spread to Liberia and Sierra Leone. And they said... And then they looked at the tree, and, then, and this tree was published in Science. And once again, DRC, that's, that's the same Yambuku outbreak at the tree again. It always shows up at the, at the root of the tree. It is the ancestor of everything else. Um, but once again, they do the tree, what do they get? They get the one that's in Guinea being most closely, closely related to that DRC one, right? And they say that DRC, the, the, the DRC outbreak was 2007. The most recent common ancestor is 2004. Right, so it, it went in 2004. It went to DRC, and then, it, and then, and then it went to, to Guinea. So you know, relatively rap- rapidly, get out there. That's and that's like 4,000 kilometers, right? From DRC to, to Guinea is three, 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 3 4,000, like that. So what, the, four thousand kilometers in ten years? My God, it's got to be that migration, right? And so they pronounced, e- Peter, you're wrong. Ebola emergence is unpredictable. Wave spread is dead. Um, you know, go back and do play with your monkeys. Even though they don't study monkeys, they study apes. Um, <laughs> which I have to do every time I give a talk everybody, Like, thank you for not saying monkeys. Okay. People always will say monkeys, and I go, like, That's not monkeys, man. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a monkey? Um, uh, anyway. So, the Monty Python. What is that? It's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I'm not dead yet. Is wave spread dead? No, right? Uh, uh, because those phylogenetic trees they're making have a real serious problem, right? And it, they, they, the, this program BEAST is like the industry standard. It's the program people use when they want to reconstruct when the most recent common ancestor o- occurred. So if there's a viral outbreak somewhere, they want to say, these two viruses, when were they one virus, right? Uh, or if they say, when did humans <coughs> split off from Neanderthals? We'll use beast and we'll try to estimate that based on genetic data. Right? And so it's everybody uses that not just for viruses, but for everything. To, to any kind of clock dating that people are doing these days, they're using beast, right? And the problem is that there's a strong correlation between viral substitution rate and host body mass. Right? And that's because it's something either about host physiology or population biology, I don't know. But it affects the, either the generation time or the effective population size of the virus, and I can't remember. I always forget whether it's bigger animals. It, bigger animals go slower. The, the substitution rate is slower in big animals, right? And and that's a problem because the guy who wrote is the, one of the developers of the pieces, this guy Andrew Rambo right here. But he and his two authors like did an analysis and they said, "Oops, oops. If you take if you take." Um, uh, samples from um, If you have this this, this this phenomenon where this is influenza, right? And they have sequence data for I- influenza and they have equine horse influenza and they have human influenza and they have uh, avian influenza bird influenza, right? And they're radically different in body size, right? And say so what's the consequence of, of this of this tendency for body size to to, to I mean uh, to be correlated with substitution rate? How well is our program beast in the in the Oh, sorry. Relaxed molecular clock model, which is one, one people like to use. How well does that program do in reconstructing the correct phylogeny? And essentially they have the true tree. They know the, the, the true tree from the, the, the sequence. And that's what the structure of the true tree looks like. Birds, people, horses. And it should be like that. Birds should cluster with humans and, and horses should be outgrouped, and the, and, the, and, the, and the diversions should be back there. And then they say, okay, let's simulate some data where we know what the true tree is. It looks like that, right? We know it's that's what we simulated with. And then let's use beast to reconstruct, um, estimate what the tree is, either using a strict molecular clock model or using this relaxed molecular, molecular clock model and see how well they do, right? And the answer is is that the strict molecular clock gets the clustering wrong. It puts horses with people instead of putting birds with people. But it gets the diversity states pretty much right, right? The, the relaxed molecular clock model is a nightmare. It, it gets the topology wrong, it clusters horses and humans, and it underestimates the divergence times by half, right? By half. It's a nightmare. And then they, then they come up with some sort of uh, fix for that that requires that you know what the host group was, blah, blah, blah. It's not pertinent to us here. And so, so the, the, there it essentially is. It, 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 it's terrible, right? This is the relaxed molecular clock. It's too, the, the divergence is too recent, and the wrong species are clustered. Um, so, could this be going on with Ebola? Could there be some sort of host shift going on with Ebola, um, and, and that's affecting what the, the phylogenies are that we're recovering? Could the long-distance dispersal be coming from that? Well, it's a concern because this is the map. This is the Congo Basin here, right? It's a huge, massive sedimentary basin, right? And there's, there are are lots of fauna. This is a fauna, faunal uh, disjunction zone, right? Uh, a hybrid zone here. And the con- Congo fa- uh, Basin has a different primate fauna, a different bat fauna, a different rodent fauna, a different everything fauna. Then what's to the west? And this is, a, this is a sedimentary basin. It's the bottom of the ocean. And these are tectonic zones where there's like mountains and caves and stuff here and over here too. The rift valley here. And then there's a whole series of volcanoes in this area. Uh, where the, 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 the Pacific plate meets the African plate. So, and that, but then there's this big, like, sand pit here, right? And so you know that there's a, a big faunal disjunction here. And lo and behold, the red dots are outbreaks, that human outbreaks that occurred in the, in the Congo Basin, and the blue are in, in uh, actually, there's more outbreaks than that, but I just sort of summarized, like pooled some. And then this is the one in West Africa out there, right? So could that be, we know that there's a host disjunction between these zones. There's different fauna in the, in the different zones. And in fact, this guy was say, gypticus is, there's no uh, evidence of Ebola in this bat, but there's lots of evidence of Marburg virus in this bat, and there's some smoking guns in, in terms of antibodies. This is the best candidate for the Ebola reservoir, that species right there. And lo and behold, it's found in Eastern Africa in, in the Rift Valley, and it's found in West Africa in the tectonic zone. It's not found in the, most of the Congo Basin, right? So whether or not this is the answer, I don't know. But, it's awful suggestive. And so if you go to the science paper, that at the time of that big outbreak in West Africa, this was the, one of the first big papers that came out and that, that analyzed data and said, oh, what's going on here? And they did a strict molecular clock. This is not a beast clock. This is a maximum likelihood clock uh, tree. Um, um, but this is a strict clock, not molecular clock. And you know, this is the clay. So this is, and this is the beast clock again, which puts Guinea and, and DRC 2007 together. And look what it does, it puts it, the divergence between these two, it puts in 2004, whereas if you go over to the, uh, to this tree, this is a Nicole Lawson tree, so there's not an explicit estimate of when the date was, but it says this happened a long time. So this is 1976 back here. And th- this is 1976. This is Yambuku again, is, is at the root. All the trees show Yambuku being the ancestor, right? But it says that the split between Guinea and that's 2007 occurred not too much after um, 1976, maybe in the 80s sometime, and that's a big difference, and we already know that in those simulation experiments, the strict molecular clock, clock tree was doing a lot better at getting the dates than the, than the rocks molecular clock tree, which is what this is, right? Warning lights, flash, 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 flash. So what's going on? Why, you know, why are these so discordant? Why does this say that these two split 30, 30 years ago, and why does this one say they split 10 years before the outbreak? huh, okay, well, yeah, I'm just, this is just pointing out is still there at the root, right? And so let's then take that fact that every, every phylogeny people do finds, whether it's, a, whether it's a coalescent phylogeny or a maximum likelihood, Yambuka's all at the root. And then let's, let's examine the fact that, well, if and that's Yambuku right there. Let's say that that's at the root, and that these are all descendants of that, and instead of using a phylogenetic tree that ha- has some sort of flaws in it, let's just say pairwise distance, pairwise genetic distance between this and everybody else. If that's PAPA, let's see how far away everybody has grown, gone from PAPA, right? And so here it is, Yersin-Yambuku substitutions relative to Yambuku, right? And this is for, the red is for, for, for sites that are in DRC, and the blue is for sites that are not DRC. And again, i pulled ones that are in the same general region, and they're within 50 kilometers of each other, right? And what you see is, is that the rate of diversions for the ones that are not DRC is different than the, than the, it's faster than the rate of divergence, the rate of substitution for the ones that are, are, are in DRC, right? So in, the, in one biogeographic zone, it evolves more slowly than it does in another biogeographic zone. Mm-hmm. So is that evidence of a host shift? Well, it doesn't end there. Um, there's another phenomenon that is not in that uh, Rambo p- paper, but it's a well-known phenomenon. There's a number of G's and T nucleotide content, right? GC content. Um, there's a strong correlation between GC content, you know, ATGC, the genetic code. Um, there's, there's lots of variation in, how, in how, how much GC content, what proportion of sites are G and C, between hosts, vertebrate hosts, for instance. And in vertebrates, there's a correlation uh, with G- uh, of GC content with body mass. I always forget whether there's more GC in bigger animals or less GC. I can't remember. I'm sorry. I'm not a geneticist. Um, and there's also big literature saying that viruses tend to match the GC hump content of their host, right? So if there was a host shift into a bigger or smaller animal, and bats, these bats, these fruit bats order by almost a more, vary by almost an order of magnitude body size, right? So the, that rosette thing I showed you is 50, 50 grams, it's like a little tiny bat, and the biggest bat is from which uh, Ebola has been found, it's like at a wingspan like that, right? And so it's a really big difference in body size. So could there be a host shift? And, and if so, then we'd expect some sort of GC thing going on where the rate of evolution is, of the different nucleotides is different between in one zone and in the other zone. Right? And lo and behold, if you look at Yersin-Yambuku and you look at AGC, a, 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 AGCT, right, in the ones that are not in DRC, adenine is evolving at a much slower rate. You get adenine to guanine, uh, is that right? You're getting transitions away from adenine at a higher rate than the other ones are pretty much consistent, evolving at the same rates. Adenines, it, you, you're mainly losing adenines, <laughs> right? Most and this is third positions. This is all this stuff I'm talking is supposedly neutral side. Third positions in a gene, and uh, the L gene of uh, of uh, most this means nothing, but it means something to you. Um, it's in third positions of the uh, of the algine, and the algine is the replication gene. It's, it, it's invisible to the immune system. It's, it only operates inside the cell, and so there, it's not subject, subject to, to immune c- c- selection, right? So you, don't, you expect it to be the most neutral possible thing. It should be like evolving. It's not neutral. It is not neutral. There's selection there. You know, you're going from bad things to the other things, right? And, and then you look at it in, in the one in DRC. Now this is adenine here, and all of a sudden adenine is no—you can't see adenine here because it's exactly the same as that. You know, that what, what, what's a what's blue uh, uh, cytosine and adenine are exactly the same, evolving exactly the same uh, rate. And there's are those different? Uh, well, you could make an argument maybe that is evolving a little bit faster. But the point is, is that this is not what's happening here. Right? You've got to change, and that change is going to lead to a change in GC content. However, what's interesting is that it, RNA is a single-stranded virus, right? And it's not GC. It's just G or C. It's one nucleotide. Something's, some, you know, something's going on with that. So because we, because we have double-stranded DNA, we get GNC, and so this is only single-stranded. So there it's, only, it's only the one nucleotide in the bias thing. So... So there, this, is this is additional, you know, so now you have a clock speed up, the average rate of mutation speeding up when you leave the, uh, leave the Congo Basin, and you also have the nucleotide bias changing when you leave the Congo Basin. Right? And this is a massive problem because virtually every phylogenetic tree of any kind that's been done for the last 50 years assumes any probabilistic one, not cladistic, but any probabilistic one assumes that, there's, that the transition matrix, the rate of A to G to CT, is constant through time. Right? There might be like 20 papers that published in the last 50 years that didn't make that assumption, but every other one made that assumption. And it's because it's computationally much more faster because if, if you make that assumption, then you have to estimate like 1 fourth of the number of parameters. Right. Um, Every time you say it's changing, then you have to estimate a new set of parameters It slows, slows you down, doesn't allow you to search as many trees, blah, blah, blah. So people just, it's just like a blanket assumption people make that that's, that transition matrix, the, the nucleotide transition probabilities, are constant through time, right? Um, they're not. Um, and so is this creating a problem with that estimation of what the most recent common ancestor of Guinea and the other ones is? Could it be? So I, so, you know, For Beast in particular, but for everybody? And, and this, so this is this is particularly a problem with bees, but it's a problem for every phylogenetic estimation program, everyone. And I'm not I'm I'm Mr. Dramatic and everything, but I'm really not shitting you. This is like serious business right here, because every viral is published in the last I mean like 15 years, Any, anything you heard about HIV, anything you heard about anything, is subject to that assumption, right? So when it, that I did this exactly the same thing that were Roby and, and whoever it was and in, in, um and uh, Andrew Rambo did. I, I just took some data and I knew the phylogeny I, and I gave it a biased substitution rate. I gave, a, I, I gave it a different uh, average substitution rates based on that DRC, not DRC thing. And I also gave it different transition matrices, tr- ma- transition matrices which, which were also based on that, those data. And so I just took those biases I just showed you and I just simulated them and then I, I used beast to reconstruct the tree. And what do I get? This is the strict molecular clock tree, and this is the relaxed microclock tree. The, the, the strict microclock clock tree does pretty well. So this is the, 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 the lines of the, the phylogeny, the red dots are the actual, are the true, right? Relaxed molecular clock tree. That's, the, that's the, the true one. That's the estimated one, right? That's the true one. That's the estimated one. And this is the group that we're, we're talking about, the way in in right? And so it's almost estimated almost, it's about 60% of the actual date. So it's saying, you know, it's saying uh, it's 18 years old and it's actually 30 years old, right? According to the known philosophy. And this is actually, this actually underestimates the extent to, to, to which this stuff is wrong because in, fa- in fact, when you apply that these methods, the topo- these topologies are right, um, but when you actually do the real data, the topologies are all for wrong. So not only are the are the dates wrong, the topologies just all wrong, right? And so Beast is underestimating these, these most re- recent common ancestors and the topology. And there's no evidence of long-distance dispersal in bats at all, zero. All those trees that people publish and saying, look, this clusters with this, and they're far apart. That means long-distance. Th- th- are just bollocks, they're just not true, right? And I gave this talk in a Follow phylo- phylo- virus I gave this part of the talk in a phylo-virus meeting in Washington right in the peak of the outbreak and the guys in the CDC were like, do they believe me now? I, I don't know. Because they're not a mathematical disease ecologists, they're bench virologists and they don't get it. Um, I think I'm uh, finally going to, a- I don't know. So, So, anyway. Um, just to, to close up, so, 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 so I made this prediction. We published this paper in, in 2005 that had like a spread trajectory, right? How, how, how well did that do, right? Well, so um, here's that outbreak here. And what you guys don't know is that in 2014, there, was, there were two Ebola outbreaks, not just West Africa, but there was another one right there in, in DRC, right? And I was actually in, I was in Congo right here when that happened. And I got all sorts of emails from my family saying, <laughs> I said, no, no problem. You know why? Because that was the stretch trajectory we published in POS Biology in 2005. And if you take that trajectory and you put it on that same map I gave you before, that is the, that's the position I shit you not. Within like 27 kilometers of where it would, be, where it would have been predicted to be. Well, well, well within the margin, it's exactly, exactly where you expect where would have be. And I spent, and I made so many enemies ten years ago or twelve years ago with telling people the CC and the WHO, you got it, and I was blocked from getting in the Congo to collect samples, et cetera, et cetera. Which is why I'm so, I'm so snarky about this, is because I tried to get in there to collect data and they wouldn't let me. They're still blocking me again now. Anyways, it predicts exactly. The DRC thing is off. It, that the DRC one's not on the line. It's not in the right, it's not, you know, far, I mean, it's not far enough away from Yonbahuku given the date based on the trajectory. But however, if you say, let's take the tree that, that now that's the strict molecular clock tree that was published in Science, and let's just sort of like, like take that, the, the branching pattern and the, and, the, and the distance between branching points, and then drape it onto the spatial thing. And then, so we'll, we'll, we'll take the the, the, the the spread trajectory I said, and then we'll put that on there, and then we'll have, it has to go to the the branching point, and then it can come back and go to Luevo, right? You know, so it goes like that. So this is the Kikwit one. That's the first one, and it's moving westward, and then that splits off. What the philosophy says now is that this one splits off next. So the first one that splits off is Kikwit, where is it? Uh, DRC uh, 1995. And then, and, then, and then it goes into Gabon, northern Gabon. And then, and then the next thing that splits off is, is, the, is the DRC one, which is right here. That splits off. And then, and then it keeps going, and it does that, and do that. And if you take that, that DRC moves up to right there. So what actually happened was that the wave went west, and then something split off and came down, back, back this way. And then it kept going, and it split again. One went out to West Africa, one out, hit the coast, essentially, and then bounced back. right And so that's what... You, and that's what the phylogeny says, right? And the, if you do that, then this goes up to here, and it's all consistent with the same, same before. Same clock, you know, 50 kilometers a year. Uh, the only thing that doesn't fit is, is Guinea 2015. So the date, for its date, it's way too far away, right? And I can, here's the part where I wave my hands. Everything else I'm really confident about, I'm like, this is like sheepish, right? <laughs> the problem is no data, right? Because it it, it it disappeared for 10 years, 20 years actually, and but if you look at Africa, so this is the this is the Yambuku right about here. This stuff I've been saying is other stuff is in here. Lueva is down here. This is heavily forested still. There's lots of bats, and continuous bat populations there. This is heavily fragmented historically and also even more recently, uh, and and then West Africa it showed up out here. Well, there's bats in this area, but the the density of bats, the density of trees, of fruit trees, is radically lower across here. The density of bats is radically lower. So if you're a bat on uh, on a given day here, you don't have to fly very far to get some fruit. Whereas out here, you probably have to fly two or three times just to get the fruit on a daily basis. And if you calculate the rate at which that that one branch that goes out here goes, it doesn't go to 50 kilometers, it goes at 89 kilometers a year. And that doesn't require a long distance movement to get out there. It just requires that, that on a daily basis, the bats are moving, you know, almost twice as far to get food. But that's consistent with what the habitat looks like. All right. So, um, in conclusion, Ebola emergence is incredibly predictable. I mean, incredibly predictable. Um, you know, the Guinea outbreak should have been predicted, and. and and doing the bat surveillance system, I, I, I have submitted grants for this, and I can't get the money to do it. it would cost like a million bucks a year at, across equatorial Africa, right? And compare that to how much money was spent on the West African outbreak. Billions and billions and billions and billions of pounds. It's, a, it's bon marché. It's, 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 a, it's a, right? You know, it's a deal. Um, anyway, that's it. Thank you.